Welcome to Panorama, a podcast on politics, Latinos, and conservatism. I'm Luis Morales. And I'm Gil Guerra. So we took a look back at the history of Hispanic Republicans in last week's episode. So for this week, Gil and I want to switch our focus to more recent events and think through what forward could look like for conservatives. So for a little bit of background, when Gil and I started this podcast, we wanted in part to highlight some of the current debates that are happening within conservatism, which I think show what conservatism means can be very different from person to person, and that that matters for what conservatism looks like, both ideologically and and electorally. So that's part of what we're going to talk about today, but one of the interesting dimensions of that debate also relates to how conservatives think through and talk about issues of race and ethnicity. For a variety of reasons, conservatives often struggle to talk about those topics, both with non-conservatives who assume that conservatism is synonymous with racism and xenophobia, but also with people who hold and perpetuate racist and xenophobic beliefs. So we want to talk about all these things today. So these are complicated and tricky conversations, but they're also really interesting and exciting. And we're very happy to have Tim Carney on to help us think through them. Tim Carney is the commentary editor at the Washington Examiner. He's also a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where his work focuses on civil society, localism, and religion in America. You might recognize Tim's name from his most recent book, Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. We'll link that book in the show notes. We'll also link two different op-eds he's written, one on Republicans and the Hispanic vote, and another about the importance of excluding racists from conservative spaces. Uh, We've mentioned both of these op-eds throughout our conversation with Tim. If you want to follow along with our conversation in written word, we have a transcript on our website. You can go there. You can check out different links that we've posted uh, within the transcript based off of our conversation with Tim. You can also sign up for our newsletter and access every podcast episode we've made, both in audio and in transcript form, again, on our website, panoramapodcast.org. So we hope that you enjoyed today's conversation. As a little bit of background, like last week's episode, this was one of the first episodes that we recorded for Panorama. So a little bit of time has passed, uh, and we were still getting the audio down at that point. So we let a siren slip through. Hope that's not distracting. And we also hope that you stick around until the end of the episode where Gil and I will be giving some of our thoughts on where we think conservatism might be going and why conservatives have a hard time sometimes talking about race and ethnicity. So we hope you stick around for that. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review to help others find the podcast. And as always, we make panorama for politicos, Latinos, and conservatives alike and hope that it offers a broader view of today's politics. So with that, here's Tim Carney. Well, Tim Carney, welcome to, uh, welcome to Panorama. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great to have you. And as a conservative journalist and commentator, how do you understand the current divisions in American conservatism? I mean, there's so much going on. Donald Trump is the biggest factor. Um, I've been in Washington for 20 years, and there have been lots of divisions. There have been there are divisions over the Iraq War. There's been sort of libertarian versus traditionalists. There's been kind of moderate establishment versus Tea Party. Um, so there's a lot going on. But one of the things that I think has happened in a couple in the last couple of years is an elevation of the culture war. And mm. it's funny, culture war used to mean sort of abortion and gay marriage, but now it more means sort of immigration uh, issues around uh, race, issues around um, other other topics like that. And so a lot of what I'm seeing is 
you had a big push in recent years for criminal justice reform, but uh, and Donald Trump has done some of that. But uh, when the police are under fire after George Floyd's death, um, there's a big push in the opposite direction, the sort of blue lives matter push. So what I would say is that increasingly those kinds of culture war issues are becoming a, uh, a bigger dividing line on the right than used to be. Yeah, we definitely want to talk about some of those more uh, uh, conceptual or, or, or ideological divisions within the right. But I guess sticking on the point of uh, sort of electoral politics, uh, more specifically, where do you think um, or, or why do you think it is that Republicans are underperforming uh, with racial minorities? And maybe more specifically, obviously, for the purpose of this podcast, why are they underperforming with Latinos? So the Republicans have never tried very hard. I don't know that this is a new thing. I remember right. looking at this in the past where if a congressional district was more than 30% Hispanic, the RNC, which would talk all about, you'd have Karl Rove and Ken Melman and all these Republican officials saying, we need to go after the Hispanic vote. But really they were just talking about immigration policy. They were talking and often, frankly, they were talking about pushing what the business community wanted, which was more liberal immigration laws. And I'd mm -hmm. say, well, if you're going after the Hispanic vote, you're not just pushing for more um, more immigrants coming into the country. In a lot of ways, a guest worker program is not what kind of the Hispanic community or even the would-be immigrant community wants. You would actually go and talk to voters. You would be funding candidates who probably are going to lose but are going to start spread spreading the message, hey, Republicans have something to offer you that Democrats aren't offering you. But if you just looked at where Republicans spent their money throughout the Bush years, throughout the Obama years, um, they weren't really trying to win Hispanic votes. And I, I would quantify that and say if it's over um, the congressional districts that are more than one-third Hispanic, 90% of them, the Republican Party would spend $0 trying to elect a member of Congress. And if it was over 50%, there was only one district ever in the last 20 years that Republicans even spent money on. That was majority Hispanic. So that was a big part of it, was that there wasn't a real effort. And <laughs> it sounds really elementary, but you got to go up and talk to people. You got to literally and figuratively uh, speak their language and tell them what you have to offer them. Um, why wouldn't a party try to maximize its number of votes? I don't know. Maybe there's a short-sightedness, a, a lack of an understanding of the demographic shift. But more importantly, I think it's a little morally uh, bankrupt to leave a significant portion of the population out of your attempts to build an electoral majority. And I do think the Republican Party did that throughout the Bush years and the Obama years, even before uh, Trump came onto the scene. And oftentimes in political analysis, especially of Republican politics, it seems that people believe that there is some sort of a trade-off that is to be made here. Essentially, that if the GOP does start to pursue Hispanic votes, making a greater effort of that, they're more likely to lose the votes of, say, working-class white Americans that they gained primarily in 2016, or that they might have a drop-off there. Do you think it's true that it is a trade-off, that if they wind up pursuing Hispanic votes, they're necessarily going to lose those votes? Or do you think there is a way for them to essentially do both? I wouldn't say necessarily, and I would say there is a way to do both, but I'd also say it's really hard. Donald Trump found an easy way to do populism 
I, I talked earlier about the business community. Um, when you've got the big employers, uh, it was Jeff Sessions when he was a senator said, the problem with so many Republicans is they look at the headlines in the Wall Street Journal that say wages are going up and they think it's a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> and so that kind of business elitism that then said, oh, wages are so high, we need more immigrants, which was sort of an explicit argument at times from Republicans that that was the reason that so many would-be Republicans had no interest in somebody like John McCain or Mitt Romney, especially Romney. And so then when Trump came along and said the trade and the immigration and these wars that have nothing to do with our national interests like Iraq and Libya, et cetera, um, they benefit the elites and they hurt you. That was a powerful argument. Now, of course, from the perspective of immigrant populations, they're the ones who are being, they're partly being turned into the scapegoats along with the elites. So can you reach out to working class whites and not alienate uh, Hispanics? I would say yes. I would say it would involve an understanding of immigration policy that's a lot more nuanced, saying we need our immigration policy to serve the people who are here. And we know hmm. that immigration is good for this country, but some immigration policy hurts the people who are here, being, and mostly immigrants and African-Americans. I, I always focus on the guest worker programs, which I think are exploitative, exploitative of the guest workers who are threatened with deportation if their boss doesn't like them, but also hmm. exploitative of the workers, immigrant white, black, who are already here. So I think it would involve a, a, a nuanced and smart approach to immigration policy that the Republican Party has proven totally incapable of. So I want to zoom into this for, for, for just a little bit. And, uh, you know, you've been cover, uh, covering Republicans and, and, and conservatives and just general Washington politics for a while. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, uh, post-2012 election uh, autopsy report. Uh, you know, it seems that that was an opportunity to switch gears into what uh, what, what you were just talking about. Uh, obviously, a lot happened. We already mentioned uh, uh, sort of the rise of Donald Trump. But how do you see that? Uh, uh, I guess you know potential lost opportunity from 2012 to to, to 2016. A lot of that after Romney lost an election that people thought really could have been won. It seemed much more winnable than 2008 or even the 1996, the last two elections Republicans had lost. 2012, the economy hadn't quite uh, recovered. Obama had some issues. The 2010 Tea Party election was such an overwhelming wave. Um, and so the amazing thing to me about the 2012 election, uh, the 2013 post-2012 autopsy report was how much it just fell into the trap that so many people, analysts, fall into, which is saying, oh, the Republican Party lost because it was too much like you. It would have won if it was more like me, <laughs> which is to say the consultant class, the party establishment all said, oh, you know what the problem was? It was too much talking about stuff like abortion, and it was too little openness towards immigration, and we got to focus more on our growth and pro-business policies. And you looked at this and you thought, wait a second. This is just what the, the party establishment and the lobbyists were all calling for all along. And then they got their guy, Mitt Romney, as the nominee, and they lost. And they said, oh, if only we had been a little more country club, we would have won. 
And so that was a lost opportunity because what I was arguing after the 2012 election was that you needed an embrace of a conservative free market populism, which was to say, yeah, you know, the game is kind of rigged. It's rigged against the little guy and it's big government doing the rigging. And that that free market populism would have had an outreach to the working class broadly. And guess what? The working class in America is disproportionately non-white. And to say that there's a lot of regulations, there's a lot of tax policy, there's a lot that the government does that uh, rigs a game against uh, against the working class. And then it didn't have to be strictly libertarian. There's a lot that could have been done on education and, again, on immigration policy that would have said, look, we think immigrants make this country richer, but we're not going to have immigration policy that's laser guided at reducing wages, which is what a lot of current immigration policy does. And so I thought there was an opportunity to say, we need to sort of have a smart populism. But the decision of the Republican leadership was to try to push populism's head underwater. And then the Loch Ness Monster popped up. Maybe to talk a little bit more about that, your work highlights that particular style of conservatism that has a tendency to emphasize the importance of various forms of perhaps unchosen attachments from family, religion, the nation, and the importance broadly of social cohesion and solidarity. So can you explain perhaps why you find this view compelling as well as uh, maybe a little bit more about why you think that, say, the elites in the Republican Party have chosen to ignore it, or at least chose to ignore it in the lead up to 2016. Yeah, so one thing is, if you have something good, it's easy to not notice it. If you're a fish in water, you don't necessarily feel wet. When we're breathing oxygen, we're not walking around saying, ah, this lovely oxygen. And so for certain portions of the population, especially for elites of all sorts. And that just means college-educated people who grow up in communities where most people are college-educated and who you know, have one or two college-educated parents. Um, the air that we breathe is community connection, is belonging mm-hmm. to things, knowing your neighbors, having a public school that's not just sort of an education factory or whatever, but is something that people belong to. They show up to the, the PTA meetings and the, and the playoff basketball games. Um, ha- belonging to a community, you know, whether it's a religious congregation or a little league, all of those things disproportionately are uh, are present among higher income, higher educated people. This is what Robert Putnam and Charles Murray wrote about in right. Bowling Alone and in Coming Apart. And so it's easy to just take that for granted and to not realize that what other people are missing is exactly that belonging, exactly those institutions of community. They're present in some really strong religious communities like Mormons. And I wrote in uh, my book about the, the, the Dutch Christian Reformed churches. But for a lot of America, they don't, the working class and middle class, their affliction is a lack of belonging. That's lost among the people who are just looking at economics or just looking at politics. So I'm glad that you brought up uh, Alienated America, uh, the, the the book that, that that came out last year that you wrote, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, you know to, to connect it to our earlier uh, sort of conversation about the, the 2016 election. I think a lot of critics of Donald Trump, a lot of critics of that moment, asserted something along the lines of uh, that that was a moment that indicated that it was a vote for racism, for xenophobia, 
and 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 you don't deny that there's part of that in the in in the election of Donald Trump in the book, but you also say uh, uh, or, or emphasize what you just talked about that there are other factors uh, specifically related to community attachment to feeling. I think you write in the book like a stranger in your own country, and I think that's interesting yep. for, for for a variety of reasons. But I guess you know to, to stick on that for a second, can can you talk about those two factors? Why do you think you know like, wh- where is xenophobia and racism in place? But why is it ultimately not the driving factor in explaining early support for uh, for for Donald Trump in 2016? No, it's right. So one of the questions that best predicted whether someone would vote for Donald Trump was, "Do you agree with the statement? I sometimes feel like a stranger in my own country." And so the simplistic way to take that, if you want to, you know, hate Donald Trump and all his supporters, is just to say, okay, you've got um, conservative white guys upset that there are now foreigners around them. Mm-hmm. And my argument is that it's a lot, sim- it's a lot more complex. That nothing is that simple. Um, I'm the kind of guy who doesn't think, you know, some people are racist and some people aren't. I think we're all naturally prejudiced in to varying degrees and racism is always going to be one of those um, prejudices that creep into what we think. And so then rather than just saying, you know, it was racism or bigotry driving a lot of negative attitudes towards either the changing culture or a changing neighborhood to say, you know, when people are saying that they've lost something, what do they feel they've lost? And so I make the analogy in Alienated America to gentrifying neighborhoods mm. where, you know, somebody says, we used to be allowed to sit on our front porch being kind of rowdy until about midnight. <laughs> and now at 9 p.m., the cops are getting called on us for this. Or in uh, a white neighborhood that's changing to a Hispanic neighborhood, we used to have an Italian deli here, and now it's been replaced by a place that sells pupusas, and I don't even like pupusas, <laughs> and I miss my, my Italian cold-cut sandwich, um, that people have lost things. But then beyond that, there's the, communities are built around norms and common customs and common practices. And if the, the norms go out the window where people don't anymore you know, uh, celebrate the same holidays or they now celebrate different holidays or the music is louder or your loud music's not allowed. Um, that or it's different music. People, or different music. I mean, in my neighborhood, it's very diverse and it's like a, a Sunday night and midnight, the music is still playing and we don't understand the words because it's in <laughs> Spanish, but I love it because I know it's like a first communion celebration. And so I'm like, okay, this is good. It's a Catholic thing, right? Uh, but it's definitely not a, you know, white Montgomery County, Maryland thing to do to play loud outdoor music at a dance party with all your kids up until midnight. That's not part of our um, custom. So those things, yeah, there's going to be racism involved in there, but I think that that's part of man being fallen as we're always going to be prejudiced. But to say that when people say my community cohesion is eroding, that's something to listen to. And that's not just a code word for their darker skinned people moving in. It can also mean, look, there were ways we did things, and now those ways are changing, and it's harder for me to fit in. Or even as simple as my neighbor doesn't speak the same language as me. That's a real issue if there's a language barrier. That is a significant issue. In, um, and so we ought to say, okay, what can we do to bridge these divides? These are hurdles to cohesion. Let's overcome them. Too many people don't 
try to overcome them. And then too many people react to that by saying, ah, it's just bigotry. You should just shut up about the changes that are happening because they're progress and get on board. What sort of bridges do you think do you exist? I mean, I think what's interesting in, in, in that response is, you know, even where, you know, there might be uh, 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 cultural differences, you know, you're, you're, you're a devout Catholic, something's very serious to you. That's something that ultimately connects you to, uh, uh, to, to many of the immigrants, sounds like, in, in, in your neighborhood. Um, you know, insofar as we think that uh, the, the immediate future will entail a lot of uh, a lot of immigration, a lot of uh, 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 sort of you know cultures introducing each other to one, to one another. What other sort of broader principles do you or or, or forms of connection do you see uh, being those those uh, those bridges? So it it's tough, and I do in in the story I just told, and in Alienated America, I talk about how I think faith and religion is one of the best ways to bridge. Uh, to bridge gaps. I talk about the immigrants, uh, Muslim immigrants, um, because they often are able to land in a strong religious community, which will be diverse. You're a Pakistani immigrant and suddenly you're around Saudis and African Americans, etc. Um, but they're able to land here with sort of an optimism and, and without some of the disadvantages of other immigrants in part because of their religious communities. And Catholicism can form a bridge between Hispanic immigrants, between Central American, South American, European immigrants, and native-born um, Americans. But we are becoming a more secular society, which I think makes it harder for us to bridge some of those gaps. One of the stories, though, that I tell in my in my book is of my next door neighbor who I invited him over for a drink. And he said, I don't drink because he was Hare Krishna. And so I said, Hey, you want to come over for a cup of tea? And he's like, Oh, I don't drink. And I said, I know I, herbal tea. He said, I don't even drink herbal tea. <laughs> and so I said, I've got lime LaCroix. And he said, I don't like to drink out of a can because his faith led him to just disdain the waste that is water in a can. And so I just had to ask him this incredibly awkward question. I said, Mr. Patel, my common way of bonding with a man is to consume liquids next to him. Which liquids do you consume? And he said, we can have water and just like throw half a lemon in it. And so we did that. <laughs> so finally we bonded. But it was tough. And it was sort of those efforts of saying it's our duty to love our neighbor and get to know our neighbor. And so when I see these differences – see it as a obstacle to be cleared rather than a barrier to prevent the connection. That's what I would say on an individual level is everybody's uh, duty. And then community leaders should say, okay, what can we do to bring people together? Sort of, uh, you know, the, the phrase of celebrate diversity never really means anything, but to say, you know what, let's have a potluck. We have people in these five block radius from 12 different countries. Let's have a potluck and our diversity is what's going to bring us together. A, we're all the same because we're hungry and B, we're all different because we're going to make different cuisines. Let's do that. That's, but that's not something Congress <laughs> is going to do. That's going to right. be done on a community level. Right. Well, this podcast is definitely a pro potluck. So I think both <laughs> Luis and I are in favor of that idea. We've, we've talked a little bit so far about ways in which uh, perhaps currents of racism within the Republican Party 
maybe natural, may also have been overstated in political analysis. But on the other hand, you've also written that the Republican Party does need to create an environment where it doesn't welcome racists very plainly. So can you elaborate on this? And what ways can we use conservative values to combat racisms? And how have Republicans fallen short of living up to those ideals? I know, and I am glad you brought that up because um, what spurred my column on that was learning that, you know, people in the conservative movement that I'd worked with and who were like, hey, can you give a lecture on crony capitalism? And then I find out that they're running these sort of secret accounts where they're talking about who can be red pilled and brought along to their white supremacist views. Um, And so my first thought was, oh, no, liberals are going to make such hay about this you know, these prominent conservatives who are like uh, admiring Hitler. But then my second thought was, but why are they landing in the conservative movement? Like we're never going to convince the liberals that we're not all racist, but let's try to convince the racists that we're not all racist. And so one of the things I said was, um, and I tried to do this in, in my book more with a focus on Islam, because that's one of the places where I think conservatism has a, a, a prejudice and a, a bigotry problem. Right. Um, but to say like, we want there to be more, you know, we want Muslims to be more proud of their faith. We want, I mean, I, we wrote columns, editorials at the Examiner about Ilhan Omar, who we've had nothing else good to say about, but about how beautiful it was that she got the house rules changed so that she could wear her religious headdress on the floor. Right. And, um, and imploring members of Congress to literally wear their religion um, on, on the floor of Congress. And that that sort of thing, one of the upsides of that argument is that somebody who really just hates Islam and thinks of themselves as a conservative is going to have to ask the question, which do I value more, my right. hatred or the things that I believe in? So hopefully it will convert hearts, and then hearts that are not convertible, unfortunately, we just have to hope that they get pushed away and that this can be done for Hispanics, for blacks, for immigrants, for people of different faiths, to really make it clear the reason we're pushing this policy is because we want to um, increase the thriving of African Americans, Hispanics, Muslims, etc. Um, that that will convert people's heart, but also push away the people who are unconvertible. And I'm glad that you did write that column because I've had internships at various conservative organizations, but I have had experiences uh, being a Mexican American in these different conservative organizations where at various times I encountered people who very clearly and very explicitly held racist beliefs. And the attitude that I often found whenever I would try to, you know, perhaps bring it up to people who were higher up in the organization was to maybe summarize it. It was just a general attitude of, well, we don't want to essentially punch right, perhaps, or a general sort of skepticism yep. because, you know, if you're a conservative and you're in the conservative movement, one of Everything the worst things you do you can be, racist. yeah, one of, the, you, one of the worst things that you can also be is like to be offended or to be triggered uh, has yeah. sort of a great stigma uh, around it as well. If you do say something is offensive, even if it very blatantly is. So do you have any tips perhaps for any young conservatives who might be listening uh, essentially on how to overcome that perhaps in the workplace or even in their own interpersonal relationships? Well, the first thing I would say is anybody like if if you're tempted to get drawn into what do they used to call edge lords, sort of like edgy ideas about race, um, push that aside. I mean, I, I always say as a Christian, um, you know, 
we're created radically equal. And so anybody who's trying to push ideas about some fundamental natural inequality is averse to uh, Christianity. Um, but the other thing I would do is, yeah, the word offended bugs me too. Um, my daughter once told me she was offended because she read a, a book guide that said Harry Potter isn't a great book for, you know, <laughs> Catholic school kids. And I said, you know, I to be offended. She said, but I think it's wrong. I said, ah, that's a different thing. Do you have a counter argument to what this woman wrote about Harry Potter? If you do, you can make it. You're not allowed to say she criticized a book I like, so I'm offended. So that would be one of the things is that taking offense can seem like an immature thing. It's a way of, of shutting down argument. And so there are some things that are just flatly offensive, you know, uh, blanket stereotypes, that sort of thing um, that you can bring up. But to, um, I think that's just a different way of presenting it as opposed to offense uh, is one thing. Um, and I don't know, it's really tricky because we have sort of competing issues going on. Sometimes conservatives say, well, we should never talk about race. We should all be colorblind. Mm. And I don't actually fall into that. I think it's really interesting if you show up and you come from a different background to share that background. But on the other hand, some people overemphasize those differences. So I'm, I, I don't know. I mean, it would, I don't have that much to say, except if you, if you do encounter something or see something, speak up, but not in the term of offended. Speak up in the term of improper. Speak up in the term of, you know what, we're all equal and you're you're denigrating that. Speak up in the terms of, well, actually, we have a lot to learn from, you know, this culture, etc. That was really helpful. And I will say, you know, we're touching on a lot of, you know, potentially controversial topics, but I don't want to get into the Harry Potter debate. Uh, that's uh, that's definitely a little bit too contra- on whether it's uh, it's a good, or, good book or bad yeah. book. Yeah, the, uh, we 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 don't want to go there right now. Uh, but but maybe one one last question um, uh, before before wrapping up. You know, the c- conservatism is in a uh, some people like to assert in, in a period of potential transition. Uh, and, and it'll be interesting to see, sort of see uh, to sort of see where conservatism uh, uh, goes over the uh, over, over the coming years. I guess I'll just leave that open-ended. Where do you see conservatism going uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the coming years? I mean, there's a lot of people who think, well, Trump will be gone in, you know, one year or four years. And so then we'll just get the gang back together and it will be, you know, what it was in the, you know, during the Obama or Bush years. I think that's both wrongheaded and and a pipe dream. I think that Donald Trump really showed us something about the country. And if um, if he exploited things, um, sentiments, we need to acknowledge those sentiments and address them in a better way. So I think there does need to be, I'm not saying there will be, but there should be a, a sense of a populism, a sense of the Democrats are literally running on saying we're going to cut taxes for people with high mortgages and high incomes. And so conservatism has to say, uh, well, if they're trying to become the party of the rich and the Democrats have been, you know, squashing things like school choice, and we actually don't think they've been serving immigrant and minority communities well, then we're going to have to become, you know, uh, conservatives are going to have to be the cause that's pushing for the working class and doing it in a way that's more effective than uh, a protectionist 
protectionism or, or closed borders or anything like that. So I'm hoping that the lessons taken that there does need to be a populism mixed with conservatism, um, and that that doesn't mean an embrace of everything uh, that, that Trump has done, but it certainly doesn't mean a, a return to the, the the way it was before. It's fascinating, Tim Carney. Thanks so much for coming on Panorama. Thank you for having me. Very thankful that Tim Carney came on the show. And I think the two questions that we mainly want to get at are our thoughts on what this conversation uh, tells us or made us think about uh, in terms of the future of the Republican Party. And, you know, what does this mean for how conservatives think about, uh, talk about, I mean, issues of race and identity. So I think my, my general thinking, I guess, to kind of set some of my priors is that the weird moment that we find ourselves in is just this wide range of general inclinations that people have when they're talking about issues of race and ethnicity, where, you know, on one end of the extreme, identity categories are like the prism through which you understand other issues, the lens through you really give that content. And on the other end, uh, you know, sort of just dismissing the fact that they may have any sort of role and as a consequence of that, dismissing the role that racism, xenophobia kind of still play in our society. And that's a, you know, when you have that wide range on top of a, an environment where you're already skeptical of people that think differently from you or that you just don't interact with, it's just like a minefield of, all right, let's see if we can exactly get to some productive uh, places, which I think we did in this conversation. But I don't know, what do you, what do you think of that general... Like, right. I mean, like I think ran. you really, I think you really hit the nail on the head there. And this is something that I've been considering in terms of just having this conversation about race. I feel like it always needs to be sort of an explanation or a pretext or some background setting, as there should be, because I think it's a very obviously sensitive topic for a lot of yeah. people. But it is a very tricky one. Yeah. No, and I mean the another tricky thing here is um, because of just other dynamics of our political system, we kind of just fall in line with other general stances that people in our general political camps have, right? So I'm not even entirely sure uh, that it's a reflection of how, like, say, 50% of the country feels and how another 50% of the country feels. But the main drivers of these conversations on these two general camps have those sorts of extremes. And it's put a bunch of other people, I don't exactly know how to quantify it, uh, in the awkward position of kind of leaning one way or the other. And I mean, you talked about it too, um, when, when you said that there's a general sense that, you know, you don't talk about racism on the right because there's this worry of punching right. I I think it's an unfair characterization to make a blanket statement that, you know, by virtue of thinking X or Y issue uh, that falls in line with how conservatives think or how Republicans vote, that that's an indication of uh, implicit bigotry or, 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 or racist animus. But on the other hand, because of this polarization, it gets tough. Um, it, it, it shouldn't be. And I think it, it just requires more courage from, 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 from conservatives. But th there has been this overall tendency of like, I just won't recognize this on my side because I'm more worried about the other side. Brian, to your point there, what I really appreciated about Tim's episode here, uh, discussion that we had with them is that I think that there's also oftentimes a stereotype, perhaps or a belief that the only Republicans 
or the only conservatives who really care about racism or the only ones who are even willing to tackle it are the ones who are more moderate uh, or the ones who come from, say, you know, the establishment, the corporate mm-hmm. wing of the party. Yeah. And, you know, Tim is certainly none of those things. You know, Tim is obviously someone who previously described himself uh, as you know, being more of a populist or being a sort of populist libertarian, a pro-market populist as yeah. well. Uh, so that's something that I really appreciate it because I do think it takes a certain amount of courage uh, to come out and still talk directly and bluntly about these issues, knowing that you're opening yourself up. Uh, as Tim said, I think that, you know, oftentimes whenever conservatives hear these arguments, their reaction might be, you know, you always talk about racism on the right. You never talk about it on the left. Uh, so that's something that I also want to address a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, the reason why we're talking about racism on the right is that, you know, at least both you and I uh, consider ourselves to be conservatives. This is a podcast and a show about <laughs> conservatism. Uh, I, I, I wonder frankly, if there's any listeners that are like, wait, what? <laughs> like, no, but, but I mean, twist. it's not that it's not that racism <laughs> yeah. doesn't exist on the left. I frankly right. believe that it does. And I think you can view how a lot of people who are on the left talk, especially to conservative minorities, as an example of that. Sure. At the same time, I don't know that I really have a lot to contribute on that specifically, because I don't really have a good sense of how people on the left uh, are thinking about these issues in the way that I do with people on the right, because, you know, I believe the things that many people on the right believe, and I've worked in these environments professionally, academically, socially. So that's sort of why we're focusing more on this. And that's why it is difficult uh, to talk about them a little bit. It's always difficult, I think, to critique your own side, but it's a, a criticism that I do think has to be made. Uh, and I think Tim put it really well when he said, you know, we'll never be able to convince some people on the left that we aren't racist, but we should definitely be able to convince the racists that we aren't racist. Right. I do think it warrants some reflection. There's various things that have come out, as Tim mentioned, about uh, infiltration, you could call it, that's happening uh, in more mainstream conservative organizations. I do think it takes reflection, quite frankly, to figure out, you know, why is this happening? And also, how can we stop it? Uh, but at the same time, I don't want the average listener, because we have many listeners who aren't conservative, to come away from this conversation, from that anecdote that I shared, thinking that, you know, all conservatives are racist or have racial impulses, because I've had many friends who are on the right who have spoken out uh, against racism within conservative circles at personal cost to them uh, at times where it wasn't easy to. So I think there's plenty of people uh, still within the conservative movement who do denounce these claims. But uh, as you mentioned, it is a conversation that I think does need to evolve. Uh, and it is one that we do need to be able to honestly have amongst ourselves, at least. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think uh, th- th- there's certainly individuals within, you know, sort of like, you know, quote unquote, the left that uh, think that racism and xenophobia is only um, uh, an issue that happens with their political opponents. On the other hand, I, I say this kind of in jest, but there can be uh, a tendency among conservatives to be like, you know who the real racists are, right. the left, right? And that's not, uh, you know, quite what we're going to do. Um, but Yeah, I mean, the tricky thing, and I think Tim did it really well when he said something along the lines of seeing difference as an obstacle to be cleared rather than a barrier to prevent connection. And I think that's really important because I do think that uh, oftentimes advocates of diversity don't acknowledge the very real, uh, uh, you know, again, cost is the wrong word, but just the fact that it is an, an, an ongoing process and that just because we believe in it, just because we think it is, you know, overall a good thing, doesn't mean that there aren't going to be difficulties associated, you know, with it. But it gets really tricky again in this atmosphere of mistrust to not just say, "Hey, that's purely a dog whistle for 
less than good motives, right? So it's important on the one hand to kind of recognize that when people are saying, hey, like my community changing, a sense of, you know, that uh, culture transforming, that I, I do think that that's a legitimate, um, you know, worry that people can have. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it's important for people on the right to recognize that it can also be a way to, uh, th- th- that it can also be a dog whistle. And distinguishing right. between the two is, you know, kind of like the hard task uh, I- I- in front of us. Um, but I think my, uh, you know, sort of framework for going forward on this is, you know, recognizing two, you know, potentially, you know, paradoxical, but needed um, ideas on the one hand, seeing that striving towards a more pluralistic society can be painful at times, but also not thinking so rigidly about culture that you forget that it's something that can be in flux. And I think that's something that especially a lot of conservatives that care, as I mentioned in the first episode about, you know, looking at tradition and appreciating tradition, um, uh, need to also be comfortable with that it's, you know, something that in itself is constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about the, the the electoral aspects of this. What, what are your main takeaways? Well, I've been thinking a lot about the election. This is uh, the last episode that we'll release before the election. And I've also been looking a lot into what's been behind the surge of Latino support for Donald Trump. Uh, this is a phenomenon that is it's kind of peculiar because, you know, obviously he did not perform well overall amongst Latinos. We talked about this a little bit with Geraldo uh, in last week's episode as well. At first, you know, this was uh, something that just seemed like maybe it was Cubans coming home in Florida, but it's increasingly seemed uh, that this is a, a phenomenon that's happening also in states like Arizona, where lots of young uh, Mexican-American men uh, are actually splitting 60-40 Biden-Trump. Uh, obviously, and you said men too, right? Right, right. Yeah. The gender is an important aspect of it there. Uh, 60-40, uh, you know, Biden-Trump, obviously still favoring Biden. So I don't want to give listeners the impression that, you know, Donald Trump is suddenly, you know, running up 80-20 margins uh, in the Latino community. Because <laughs> and if you want to know why, listen to Geraldo's episode. because it goes <laughs> Right, yeah, there, there you yeah. go. And I mean, I was honestly sort of disappointed by a lot of the analysis that I found there because the main people who do seem to be paying attention to this seem to be, you know, people who typically analyze Latino politics, which overwhelmingly tends to be people uh, who are liberal. And the main yeah. takeaway is that, uh, that, I read from various analysts um, was that essentially the the reason why this is happening is because essentially wanting to be white or wanting to have, have proximity to whiteness is a term mm-hmm. so I use a couple of different ones, you know, wanting to have proximity essentially to white supremacy. That to me is just a really lacking explanation in a lot of ways. I don't doubt that these people have actually gone out and spoken with Latino Trump voters. Uh, they all seemed like you know fairly serious analysts, which is even more troubling uh, because I can almost guarantee you that in none of those interviews, none of those exit surveys, none of those focus groups, did anyone actually say, uh, well, I'm voting for Donald Trump because I want proximity to white supremacy. <laughs> you know? And I mean, it's just something to, to put my cards on the table. I'm not a Trump supporter. Right. Uh, you know, I voted against him now in two elections, but I do think it's important to understand why people are drawn to him by this phenomenon of support in the Latino community, or at least among young, you know, Latino men, is occurring. I think it's important to understand why that is, even if you are opposed to him. Uh, oh, I think yeah. it's important to to understand that, just for its own merits, uh, and also because I think there's an attempt. We've spoken about this throughout uh, the course of the podcast, but there's sort of an attempt. Uh, to define, you know, what Latinos can be politically while still being Latino. 
Yeah. Uh, we talked about uh, Carlos Carbolo being denied membership in the Congressional Hispanic Caucus because his views were Republican and therefore, you know, you couldn't possibly be uh, a Latino and a conservative at the same time, you know. So just doing that to me, it also just feeds into the idea that of essentially, you know, just determinism that because you are one identity, you necessarily have to interpret that identity as, you know, the main lens that you see the world through. Uh, and then that's what's going to determine your political values, how you should vote. And if you don't do that, then clearly you must be in self-hatred and in self-denial. Uh, and that for me is just a very frustrating aspect. I mean, I, I don't necessarily even have uh, a compelling case to make as to why, especially young uh, Latino men uh, are tending to at least move more in Donald Trump's direction. I think anyone can talk about um, lack of economic security. But to be quite frank, it's probably similar issues for why overall Donald Trump is also more popular with young men in general across all demographics, uh, not just Latinos. To kind of go back to uh, you know something that I said on last episode that I thought I didn't say well, but what I said was like, I don't really care how Latinos vote, which to some extent, you know, was, uh, you know, not a very carefully worded statement. But I guess what I meant by that was, uh, what you're talking about is this, the lack of understanding of who Latinos are, and putting the idea of how do Latinos vote before trying to, you know, understand a particular sort of uh, community. And as Geraldo, um, you know, said, and, and even that word community is incorrect more like you know communities plural mm-hmm. right um that is that it's much more uh uh diverse than the, than we often acknowledge um well you know let's as as we wrap this up let's transition to an audience question this is I, I, and and i'm you know paraphrasing it because i had a conversation with a close friend of mine uh, uh, joanna hale uh, uh so i'll ask you this and it's sort of previous next week's episode also but basically it's a question of where do you see uh, uh, the party going. We asked this of Tim, uh, Gil. You're thinking, I think, much more again about electoral politics. So I'd like to get your your, your take. You know, do you see? Um, you know, huge question. But do you see more of a turn, uh, even post uh, this election, even post Trump, towards you know more more populism within the Republican Party? Do you see any potential return to what a pre-Trump consensus looked like? Right. I think there's there's essentially three scenarios uh, that I could see the Republican Party doing. They could try to stick with Trumpism, you know, you can call it populism, uh, but in Trump's direct brand and style of politics, uh, even after the election, and essentially, you know, continue what they've been doing. I think even that might be unlikely, just because I do think that. Uh, if Donald Trump loses, you know, that will be very difficult to do because there will be competing factions uh, ideologically that will want to claim some part uh, of his legacy. If he wins, that's essentially the only outcome uh, that can happen, uh, really, is that there will be a continuation of this. I think the most likely scenario is that there will be try- there will be an attempted rehabilitation of Trump-style conservatism. So I think you'll have some people who are more libertarian, you can say, uh, who will uh, really stick to his foreign policy rhetoric, at least, um, and say, you know, Donald Trump won because he promised to get us out of endless wars, because he worked hard to create peace deals in the Middle East. He didn't get entangled. He had the opportunity to, uh, didn't get entangled abroad. We should focus more on our, on our problems at home. That's why he won. And that's our winning message. You'll have some people uh, who will argue more on the economic side, uh, you know, the populist trade side, maybe someone like Josh Hawley. Uh, people who will argue that you know Donald Trump won because uh, he was the first one to really speak out about disastrous trade deals, 
Uh, and that's what really, you know, the average American uh, and the deindustrialized Rust Belt, you can say, cares about. That's why he won. But then again, you might have some people who might try to restart uh, the pre-Trump consensus. I think it's fairly dead at this point. Um, however, I don't think it's necessarily as dead as people might think. I, I, I wouldn't bet on it. Um, but I do think we're currently seeing the conditions where people have more of an uh, an appetite for technocratic type government. We're in a major global health crisis. Uh, we're facing an ascendant rising rival power in China. Uh, there's a lot of threats that do require uh, a level of competency, a level of expertise uh, in a way that I'm not sure we really felt as a country. Uh, the threats that we were facing, the problems we were facing, uh, say, in 2016 that we did uh, to this extent. So I think the conditions could be there for someone who is more in the establishment mold. But I think what you really find is I actually don't think many Republicans really try to break away from him very cleanly, at least not most current elected politicians. I think most will say, you know what? I didn't like his rhetoric. This is, again, presuming that he loses. I didn't like his rhetoric. Um but there were these parts of his agenda that I did like. That's what most people liked about him. And that's what I'm keeping and running with, just with a nicer sort of re- you know, rhetoric attitude about it, uh, more of a conciliatory tone. And then again, if he does win, I think that really just cements uh, the state of the Republican Party. I'm not really sure what dissident groups really do in the follow-up, because I think that a lot of people who are opposed to Donald Trump and are in Republican circles, or like Republican electoral circles, have spent the last four years saying, you know, Donald Trump is not necessarily our party. Even the ones who have seated and said, you know, Donald Trump is a Republican Party. That's why the Republican Party needs to lose. Who can rebuild mm-hmm. it? I'm not sure after two terms uh, how you really say that. Um, or how you make that case even. So I think oh. that'll be an interesting thing to see, but I'm uh, eager to hear your take on it. I, I think one of the interesting things that, well, I, I guess two two thoughts. One very quick one is that I definitely think both the left and the right uh, have, have had a tendency to overlearn the lessons of 2016 um, as if it was, you know, a mandate election, right? As in, like, this is affirmation that, like, what the country wants, or at least what the Republicans want, uh, more than anything else, is Trumpism. Uh, even that's a nebulous term. Uh, uh, and you know, if you're you're conservative, it means you know, yes, we finally have to you know embrace these uh, principles and run with it. If you're you know more progressive, it's like this confirms all the you know the worst sort of priors that we have about the Republican Party, right? And I think the fact that there was such a close election kind of you know should give us pause in in running with that. So that's one thing uh, to to kind of set the scene. The other thing is um, you know Ross Douthat wrote this really interesting column uh, where he started out the opening. Uh, talking about one of my favorite shows, which is Mad Men. There's basically this, you know, very quick scene. You know, the, I'll summarize quickly the scene in Mad Men where two of the main characters having a conversation after one of them uh, gave uh, uh, gave birth, and she's you know considering giving uh, the child up. And uh, you know, another character comes in and just tells her like, "This never happened." Like, you know, completely forget this. And you know, Ross Douthat kind of uses this as a, you know, could this be what Republicans do? should Trump lose, you know, kind of pretend that this was, you know, something that didn't happen. Um, and I think one of the mistakes of that is that at, at its best, the the election of, of Donald Trump gives us a sense of what some real anxieties were, whether we think they're legitimate, whether they think that whether they're uh, uh, good is, is, is a separate conversation. But it's it's hard to think that you can just ignore the fact that it happened. 
in part because, as Tim mentioned, and as we've talked about, these sorts of you know worries about either uh, a more isolationist foreign policy or about uh, immigration or about trade, uh, uh, about the role that you know, I guess you know, this is sort of not not exactly something that Trump talks about, but some you know Trump and Jason or Trump supporters do talk about whether we've emphasized the role of markets. Like these are all things that conservatives have disagreed on for a really long time. Um, and it just so happens for a variety of reasons that right now we find ourselves in a point where, you know, the, the, the more populous wing of the party is ascendant. But the flip, I think, is also true, right? Like, the, if the post-Trump uh, uh, future, or if the post-2020 future, whether Trump wins uh, and sort of, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the sort of Trumpian populism remains the, the, the sort of main voice in, in, in conservatism, or whether he loses and that faction still, you know, has, you know, I said the, uh, you know, in, in the driver's seat, the other factions within conservatism are still, you know, there. It's not like they went away. You're just no longer in a position of power. But I think it kind of puts dip, uh, the the responsibility on different factions within conservatism to basically remain ready for whatever the next political moment uh, means. So, you know, we shouldn't talk about it as, this, as if, oh, these other ways of approaching conservatism are gone. Um, can be a real problem, especially if it's, you know, like, uh, you know, you and me that are less than enamored with Trumpism, but it's also not the end of the story. Right. I want to touch on something you said, uh, and then maybe I'll leave it there. So I think it, it ties into our podcast a little bit about how you can't just pretend that it never happened. You know, we're we're doing this podcast about Latino conservatism, and as you mentioned, and as you mentioned, you know, three times now, uh, maybe, you know, being it over the head a little bit, you know, neither one of us uh, are necessarily sympathetic to Trump, uh-huh. uh, yeah. you know, to put it diplomatically. Uh, at the same time, I think it would be a disservice uh, to people who are interested in this topic. I think it would also just be disingenuous if we pretended like a lot of conservative Latinos weren't supporting oh, Trump or haven't yeah. come around to Trump. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you know, we're not trying to necessarily. You know, I I hope that we are not painting a picture that you know, like oh, Latino conservatives don't support Trump because there have been many. We've had some on this podcast as guests, right? You know, and I do think that we need to be able to have these conversations. Uh, you know, among conservatives who supported Trump in 2016 and 2020, conservatives who didn't support him in one or the other or neither, uh, in order to, you know, really move forward and try to address a lot of the problems that, you know, are ailing a lot of people in this country. You know, I, I worry about how we'll be able to do that. But I do hope that, you know, there is a path for the GOP to address a lot of those issues, issues like climate change, issues like immigration, uh, and a humane and, and, maybe more of a comprehensive way than we've done so far. All right, that's our episode. Thank you again to Tim Carney for coming on Panorama. And thank you for listening. As you know, we usually release episodes on Tuesdays. Next Tuesday, apparently there's an election going on or something like that. So Luis tells me. Uh, So we'll be releasing our episode on Thursday. We'll essentially be reacting to the election. We won't have a guest. I'll be talking primarily about the Hispanic vote, different precincts that we where we know the results already. Luis will be taking the big picture approach and talking more about the lofty ideals of this country or something like that. That's our plan thus far. So keep an eye out for that episode next week, dropping on Thursday. And again, please leave us a rating, leave us a review if you liked this episode, if you like this show so far. It really does help other people find our podcast. So with that, thank you again and see you next week.